I posed a question. If you receive our email update, because you, 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 you mentioned that on the communication card, and we send out an email, what's happening in the service and other things over the weekend coming up? And uh, one of the things I posed was, what do you come to worship for? What are you looking for? Is that, is that fair to ask that? We have expectations, really, for most anything, don't we? Anything that we do, we have an anticipation, we have an expectation of what it is going to be like or what it should be like. What am I looking for when I come to church together to worship together? There are lots of ways that we could spend our Sunday morning, so what are we looking for here well, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and admittedly, the main topic, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, admittedly, the main thrust is not, church, this is what worship is about. So what am I doing? Am I just taking my burden and pushing it onto the text this morning? Well, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 2, he's, he's carrying on this discussion about some essential core things that are not right in the, in, in the church at Corinth, things that they need to know to be able to pull back together. There's these divisions that have occurred. And what he addresses in the second chapter that will bring the church that's divided back together again are the things that we should be doing every Sunday morning when we worship together. So that's the connection into this topic. It's a great way to, to approach this from maybe an unexpected direction, but to see some key expectations that we ought to have in, in, when any church gathers together to worship together. So that's our thrust in... First, um, First Corinthians chapter two, and uh, in worshiping together, I think of songs, I think of hymns. I'm reminded of the hymn, hymn writer Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby opens our eyes and helps us to see things that we don't otherwise see. Fanny Crosby helps us to see things, and yet she herself is blind. It's interesting how sometimes what seem to be our human limitations are actually things that God uses to help us to, to see or perceive something we might otherwise overlook. God used a blind woman to write these songs, Fanny Crosby, at a time when the church is drifting off into, into a liberalism that was disregarding God's word and disregarding the historic central truth of God's word concerning Christ who died for us and rose from the dead. And he used a blind woman to help the church see those things and is still helping us see. It's interesting because when you think about, well, what, what are my expectations? What am I looking for? What will I see? It's kind of like this, this picture that goes with a poem. I'm going to start with a, with a picture here. That's a, it's it's on, actually on the kids' bulletin as well. So kids, follow along. This poem is kind of for you as well, for all of us. It's The Blind Men and the Elephant by John Godfrey Sachs. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each might by, by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happened to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, this wonder of the elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal 
and happened to take the squeaming the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said even the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact, who can? This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the, wrong, in the right, and all were in the wrong. So oft in church and worship wars the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant that none of them has seen. It's a good warning to us, isn't it? That we grab hold of something and that something that we grab hold of becomes everything. And because the something becomes the everything, we miss the real thing that God would have us to see in worship. And so if we're going to ask, what do I expect? What do I want out of worship? Wouldn't it be good for us to ask God to open our eyes that we might see what he would have for us? Let's just pause and pray that very simple prayer. Lord, we join with your psalmist this morning. Lord, a very, a very brief request. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, search us, O God, and, and know our hearts. Try us and know our minds. See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us instead in your everlasting way. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things I would suggest that we should be looking for in worship. Three things we should be looking for. The things that we should see. Not entertaining speech or music, but the focus is on Christ. Worship should be Christ-centered. I want to hear about Jesus. People need to hear. Those who drop in and are, amongst, are, are among us for the morning, what they need to hear more than anything else, they need to hear about Christ and Him crucified. We need to be reminded in worship, like that seed of a coming glorious reality that is beyond this disappointing present. We need in worship to be kingdom focused. Worship happens now but is future focused. It sees what is not yet through the enabling of God's Spirit. Lord, lift my gaze beyond these present troubles. Do you remember that message it's Friday, but Sundays are coming. How many of you heard that? Let me take a quibble. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. It's Friday, and the, the disciples are cowering in the upper room, and they're hiding away, and they're waiting for the soldiers to come. But that's Friday. Sundays are coming. You've heard that? A lot of us have heard that. 
It's, it's a sermon that wasn't even preached by who most of us have heard it from, a man named Anthony Campolo. It was preached by an unknown, unnamed African-American pastor, and yet it resonates with us. It was way before YouTube, or even more of you would have seen it. But, but it resonated across America because that is so true. We need to see more than we do. In worship, we should expect to see more. It should be kingdom-focused. Sunday's coming. And thirdly, we need God working in us. We need God working in us by His Spirit and by His Word and revelation, illumination, transformation. Worship should be Spirit-empowered. So I want you to look for those three things. See if you see them with me as we read together in Second Corinthians chapter 2. I'll read. I invite you to follow along. We will be on... Pages 952, 953, if you're using a pew Bible. Uh, If you have your own Bible, please follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look for Christ-centered, kingdom, future-focused, God's perspective rather than our temporary perspective, and spirit-empowered. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Or you could, you, 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 you could read that, interpreting spiritual truth with spiritual words. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. The spiritual person judges or rightly perceives all things, but he himself is to be judged or perceived by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Worship is to be Christ-centered. Worship is to be kingdom-focused. Worship is to be spirit-empowered. When we come to worship, in order to worship, if you wish to worship, the thing we must do is to focus on Christ. It's not about lofty speech or wisdom. That harkens back to chapter 1, verse 21. Since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. 
God did it not through lofty words of wisdom and fancy rhetoric that the Greek world was used to. No, from simply proclaiming the truth of the gospel, God would save those who believed by the illuminating of his spirit. It's not by a a person's wisdom or, or being smart enough, but God's announcement, faithfully told without any manipulation, negotiation, or capitulation, God's good news, faithfully told, is God's power to those who believe. The world turned right side up. The gospel says that if they had known this, if they had known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Think about it. From God's perspective, he who Rome seemed to eliminate on the cross, is this, this Jewish peasant is actually the Lord of glory. The one who they thought to eliminate is the only means for them to be saved. They thought he was ruined, and yet he is their salvation. They thought him not worth living, and yet he is the Lord of glory. The world turned right side up again. It's not through speech, wisdom, or even a sign It's only through the message. The audience in this case, all of us, if we are going to sit, we are dethroned. If we're going to observe and critique and say, well, I agree with, I don't know, we are dethroned in 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 the face of the gospel. The gospel is not for ours to evaluate. The gospel is for us to receive. We are dethroned from our own desire to judge whether messenger or method, because messenger and method are not the point, except they distract from that what is the point. That we should be careful about. That we should be discerning about. But other than that, it's not our point. And I'm not saying this out of, out of self-defense. But be careful if there's something within you that allows something that just rubs you a little wrong about somebody who's proclaiming the gospel if that distract you from the gospel itself. Don't let that happen. Don't put our, our, our whims and our desires and our preferences on a throne that would dismiss or put to the side the centrality of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is a powerful statement. That, I think, is the key statement of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, in my Bibles, I take and I draw a little skeleton key alongside that verse. That's a key verse. You know, Paul is going to, after he deals with this initial issue of divisions in the church, which he, he addresses through Christ and him crucified. Jesus did not ele- elevate himself. They should not elevate themselves. Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. We humble ourselves. We put others before ourselves. If, if these groups were putting others before themselves, they would not have these divisions among them. Christ crucified addresses that problem. And not only that, every problem, one after another, every issue that is raised within the church, the answer to it is, a more, is an attitude of humility that is focused on Christ and him crucified. And how would I step into following him in his humility rather than wanting my own way in a host of different directions? I determined to know nothing among you and him crucified because that answers the issues that arose in the Corinthian church. It's a key verse. And it's key for us to worship. If we focus on nothing else in our worship, it will be that we will focus on Christ and him crucified for us. The the humility that God himself stepped down from glory 
and into humanity, and so doing, gave himself in our place. All that's packed into that, that he would die for me, that I would live in him who rose from the dead. Wow. That takes, the, that takes all of the attention off of me and onto him. You know, you can apply that in terms of worship into sacrificial serving. I serve because of him who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I give. We're going to receive an offering. You know, I'm funny about that. We never take an offering to church. You know, we, we will not take it. If you want to keep it, it's okay. Nobody's going to take it from you. We'll receive an offering if it's freely given out of a desire that I have to want to give back to the Lord who gave himself for me. You see how it works? That, that mindset of focused on Christ and him crucified for me, that drives any aspect of worship from gathering together to serving, to giving, to, to, to caring for those around me, even to telling others about him. Whatever I do in worship is driven by Christ crucified for me. My speech and my message is not about plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, that's not a matter of, of, of signs and miraculous wonders. The power that Paul refers to, well, go back to verse 22 of the first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 22, he said, Well, the Jews demand signs in the Greek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Instead, we're not giving signs, Paul said. No, the, the power of the gospel was the spirits working in rebellious hearts bringing us to believe. The power of the gospel is the transform, transforming work that it does within us. God has convinced them of this gospel, not Paul. You could apply that to sharing with others. Apply that to your, your, your desire with a little hesitancy to witness to those around you. It's not on you. Just faithfully tell what you know about Jesus and Him crucified for us. Tell that. And let the Spirit use that gospel powerfully. He'll do it. It's not on us then, is it? That takes a lot of the pressure off. It's also on exit. Well, I, I, I feel like I need, to, I need to speak to somebody here about an area, but oh, I, I might say the wrong thing. I might hurt their feelings and... You know, even as far as exhortation, this is not a license for us to be careless to other people. But we need to speak the gospel to one another. We need to remind one another of what matters most in life and how any of us and all of us get distracted by lesser things. We need to speak the gospel, even exhorting and challenging one another. Not carelessly, but there's always room for fleshly or with the weakness of our humanity, there's always room for misunderstanding. Let me just do an experiment. Would anybody here who comes to church looking for somebody that they can trample on and upset and hurt their feelings? You come to church hoping that you can at least hurt somebody's feelings this morning. You can be unkind to at least one person. If, you're, if, if that's when you came to church this morning, go ahead and stand up, would you? I just wanted to... <laughs> Somebody sat down really quick. <laughs> no, that's not why we come to churches. That's silly. So we can agree that if there is a hurt, if there is a slight, it is from our weakness. It is not intended. Can we agree there? 
So go ahead and speak to one another. Go ahead and encourage one another. Go ahead and try to, try to build up one another, even challenge one another. And if it so be that somebody says something to you that sort of hit you the wrong way, and you start, wow, well, gee, what are they saying? Are they judging? No. Let's just agree together that we'll take that on the basis of the cross, that they mean for my good. They don't mean to hurt me. They mean to build me up. They mean to point me toward things that matter most, even if it was somewhat clumsy. We mean for one another's good. We will give ourselves for one another. That's the family we want to be for each other. Even if we're imperfect in this, well, welcome. You'll fit right in, won't you? We won't do this perfectly, but we will focus on Christ and him crucified for ourselves, for one another. You know, things are not always as they seem. Faith is not in our world's wisdom. Things are not, faith is not in the common sense of the age of the day. Faith is in God's working for us in Christ's cross. That doesn't mean there is no wisdom in that. It doesn't mean that faith is contrary to wisdom. It means that things are not always as they seem, or things are not always as they seem now. Let me illustrate this. I have a picture here. I have a picture. How tall is that? How tall is that thing? Can anybody tell me? How tall is that thing? Anybody, anybody want to hazard a guess? There's a ruler there. It looks like nearly four inches, huh? Things are not always as they seem. Next picture. Wow, you see, you turn that just a little bit, and all of a sudden you you realize it's something else entirely. It wasn't. Sometimes we are too close up. We are too in the here and now. We see things so close center in front of us, and it seems a certain way, and yet it's sideways. It's not how things, even though we're seeing it, it's seemingly clearly it's not how it really is. And the flagpole, fortunately, is not only four inches tall, is it? It's much different, but it's a different angle of looking at it that matters. We need to be, our our perspective needs to be, needs to be um, a a, a bigger picture and not myopic. Let me me give another example of this. I, I, I stand on a scale. We have a bathroom scale at home. Anybody have a bathroom scale at home? I stand on my bathroom scale and it reads, oh, somewhere over 80. You say, well, yeah, mine does too. No, no, no. Mine reads somewhere over 80, but under 90. Does yours do that? No, not so much. No, seriously, my scale works perfectly fine, and I climb on board, and it says 80-something, and I feel great. That's Mother's Day. You ladies can borrow my scale if you want. We'll share it. Yeah. What's wrong with my scale? There's nothing wrong with my scale. It's just in kilograms instead of pounds. We brought it back from Africa, and we still use the silly thing. So, so if, you, if you climbed on that scale, you might think things are very different than they are. I climb on that scale, and I say, oh, my goodness, I'm getting skinny. I better eat and eat and eat. It works for me. But that probably wouldn't be the best pattern, would it? No, no, no. We, we don't necessarily see things as clearly as we think we do. Things are not always as they appear. Reminds me of the Old Testament story of Elisha and his servant. Kids, you might remember the story that, that the prophet Elisha and his servant, well, Elisha used to be telling the king of Israel what the king of Syria was planning and plotting. And so the king of Syria thought that there was a spy in his own, in his own, in his own palace because the king of Assyria always knew what he was doing. But it wasn't. It was the prophet Elisha was telling 
the king of Israel, what the king of Syria was up to. And so the king figures this out, the king of Syria, and he goes and he surrounds the whole city with a huge army with horses and chariots and all kinds of soldiers. And they surround this city where Elisha and his servant are. And the servant is worried. And the servant says, oh no, what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this? How, how can there be any escape? And in 2 Kings chapter 6, there is a very short prayer. Well, when you're in trouble and when you're surrounded, you only have time for a very short prayer. So short prayers are okay. You know what the prayer was? Oh, Lord. This is Elijah's prayer for his servant. Oh, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Now, you need that one. You need to write that down. Did you write that down? 2 Kings 6, 17. Because I want you to pray that for me, too. Let's pray that for one another. Let's pray that for me. Oh, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And, when the, and then the servant looked up again, and he saw on the hillsides round about surrounding the Syrian army, he saw these chariots of heaven, and he saw these angels. And they were not alone. They were not on their own. They were not going to fall victim to Syria. No. The captain of the Lord of hosts was there. The armies of heaven were, were set round about to defend them. And there was nothing to worry about from God's perspective. But we don't always have God's perspective. Or sometimes we lose sight of God's perspective. We have been given God's perspective on the matter. But we lose sight of that when things closer at hand close in on us. Oh, Lord. Please open his eyes that he may see. Worship is faith declaration and our heart's reminder of the reality which we do not yet fully see. It's like that seed. Kids, remember that seed I showed you? Worship is like that. It's, it's a, a, the reality. It's, the, it's our declaration that there's going to be a flower. It's our, it's our heart's reminder that though we don't see it yet, the flower is coming. It's your promise to mom. I know, mom, it's only a little noisy packet of seeds, but there's flowers in there. Really? And there are. And there are. Worship is panoramic, not myopic. Worship is not about us. Worship is about God and all that God has done and will do. That is worship. Wow. Take that into your current reality, day-to-day drudgery. huh? It just puts everything in perspective. Worship is a perspective opportunity. We start the week in worship. Worship week doesn't start on Monday. The week starts on Sunday. And if your Microsoft Outlook or, or Gmail calendar is set up differently to start the day on the week on Monday and work through to the weekend, change that. Start your week on Sunday. We start on Sunday worshiping together, resetting again our perspective so that when our eyes have been on the Lord more clearly, we will see the rest of the week far more accurately. Moms at home with little people all day long. There's a, there's a movie that just came, came out this weekend, Mom's Night Out. I don't know if any of you have seen it yet. But there, there's a, I saw a preview. I saw a scene in a preview that this mom with, with her young kids is just begging another lady, please tell me it's going to be all right. Tell me it's going to be all right. And this wise older woman in the face says, don't worry, it is going to be all right. And in six or, or eight years, it's going to be fine. Six or eight years. I can't make six or eight years. 
But our perspective on God's bigger reality makes that which is closer a little more clearly. You're teaching children. Maybe you're teaching teens. It's a thankless job, and, but somebody's got to do it. But does it really matter? Does it make any difference? They come and they learn and they leave. I was talking to a high school teacher about this. That the students come and they're, and they're there and they go and they never see or see the fruit of it. They don't see what becomes of these lives that they've poured themselves into. Some parents have that experience. Fortunately, Daniel's home this weekend. Where do they go? Seeds you plant. There is promise that God will give the increase. Some plant, others water, and God himself causes the growth. You wonder, is my job any more than delivery or processing or computer entries or paperwork or stuff sold or things delivered? God is working in you. That job is now heaven's workshop. It's God's provision and it's God's exercise. It's training for eternity. These troubles are actually the Lord's gym. This is where he is growing me into his shape for eternity. At the same time, God has given that job an upgrade. God has made you in that job an ambassador for heaven in whatever place he has, he has strategically placed you. Right there, in that place, ready to... It's been said of preachers that we must be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Well, let me adapt that for you. At work, you should be ready to speak, pray, or cry at a moment's notice. Okay? I softened it a little bit so you could embrace that in. But be ready to speak, pray, or cry, to to pray for somebody, to offer to pray for them, to offer to speak some encouragement or some hope even the glorious gospel, to be ready to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to weep and to cry with those who weep. Care for these that God has put in your path. Care for them. God has given them to us, the people around us. They are in our path. God has caused your journey to run through their neighborhood, seeing even the everyday God's way. That's everyday worship. That takes Sunday and stretches it into the week that we need in worship, we need to let God open our eyes to his true reality. We let God open our eyes to his true reality. What no eye has seen, verse 10 said, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. If they had seen it, they never would have crucified him. But you have seen it. You have seen it. You have seen it. It's true. God, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your word and through worship. So, to worship, focus on Christ. That's what makes it worship. In worship, let God, ask God, open your eyes to his true reality. And through worship, ask God to work by his spirit. Worship reorients us. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The Spirit takes the things of God and shows them to us. He takes the things of Christ and he shows them unto us. That's the Spirit's ministry. The Spirit illuminates. The Spirit reveals God to us. And he does that. Verse 13 says that he does that using his word. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, that the Spirit even inspired and carried along these biblical writers so that I can boldly say to you, just like Isaiah and just like Amos, this is what the Lord says. God says this. 
we have a word from the Lord himself that reorients us, that, that will work in us by the working of God's Spirit. That's what we should ask God to do. Like Moses, we say, Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. I can press through this desert because I have been to the mountain. It reminds me of a speech. One of the more famous uh, speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King, not his I Have a Dream speech, but the uh, I Have Been to the Mountain speech, it's called. All of his speeches seemed, didn't have a title. There was a phrase that carried them. And in his, in his I Have Been to the Mountain speech, he says this, We have difficulties ahead, but it doesn't really matter with me anymore because I have been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not going to be concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And He has allowed me to go up to the mountain. He has allowed me to look over and I have seen the promised land. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the coming, glory of the coming of the Lord. Dr. Martin Luther King. He spoke those words the evening of the day before he was assassinated. Wow. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? To be reminded of who our God is and what he has done for us. That in worship will, will not only carry us, it will somehow make it through the week, but that will fill us and embolden us. God, work that truth in us in such a way that we are different in the week. We are different for eternity because we have been to the mountain. And we have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and nothing can compete with that. Yeah. Worship fuels faith. Worship crowds out fear. Through worship, ask God to work by His Spirit in your spirit, fueling faith, crowding out fear. The spiritual man rightly discerns, verse 15 said, all things. The spiritual person rightly discerns, he rightly perceives, judging all things, but he himself is understood by no one. Oh, they will misunderstood you. They will get it wrong. They might call you simplistic. They may, they, they may call you all kinds of things. You really believe that? Really? Oh, but let God's truth give you courage and don't be intimidated. It is the spirit, well, let me, read, let me read what John Calvin says. It is the spiritual man alone who has such a firm and sound knowledge of the mysteries of God that he really distinguishes truth from falsehood, the teaching of God from the fabrications of men, and he is deluded in very little. Let God tell you how things really are, that that seed will be a flower that Christ's kingdom will come, that Jesus, our Savior, who died for our sin, really is risen from the dead and coming again. And everything that matters matters in relationship to that, not all of the other crises that emerge in our own life with our own drama or our family or our county or our nation or even the world. Nothing else compares except it relate to Christ and Him crucified and His coming. Everything else is framed by that. We make sense out of everything else in that framework. Christ and him crucified, Christ and him coming. 
Don't sweat how others get you. Don't sweat how others perceive you. Doesn't the song say, though none go with me, still I will follow. I want to close praying for us again. But a borrowed prayer, if I may. A borrowed prayer from the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You could find it, but I'd encourage you just to quiet your heart. Close your eyes and just hear the word of the Lord. Hear a spirit-inspired apostolic prayer for God's church. Hear a spirit-inspired word of God, what God wants us to pray for this church. Oh God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Father of glory, give us, Lord, a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Lord, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we pray that we would then know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe? That according to the working of your great might, just like you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. Oh Lord, remind us of that same power. How you have seated him indeed at the right hand in the heavenly places. And that is also our destiny in Jesus. Far above all rule, authority, power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. O Lord, give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you and in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Lord, that will be enough in Jesus' name.